Dotnet Rocks episode 969 with guest Richard Astbury. Recorded Tuesday, April 8th, 2014. Hey, 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 thanks very much. It's Carl and Richard, and we're here for Donnet Rocks. What are you here for? I'm here for Donnet Rocks. <laughs> I'm here for Donnet Rocks. Well, that's a good place to be. Well, all right. Hey, watch out for that car. <laughs> uh, unless you're taking the train. In that case, watch out for that guy. He's, he's watching you eat your donut. I do like he's the creepy. train. <laughs> you're in an odd mood. I definitely. I am, yeah. You got something cool for me? Uh, you, you know, something fun. Um... Well, go ahead and roll the music and we'll talk about it. All right. All right, buddy, what do you got? So, this is an article from 2003 from Scott Allen. Oh, really? Code Fun with C Sharp and HP Laser Jets. And I've tinyurl'd it here. So, if you go to tinyurl.com slash HP hack, and I'll just read here. He wasn't sure if he should put it under code or humor, but it because it's both, but ultimately it's funnier than technical. So, so here it is. I was studying the C-sharp language one day, and remember, this is 2003. Yeah. And thought back to earlier in my career. Back then, I was learning the assembly language for a little 8-bit Hitachi CPU, the 6303, in order to control a small thermal printer. With the right control codes, you could get the printer to display a custom message on the LCD, which was tiny. Then I was walking by the HP laser printer in the office, and I wondered if I could do the same here. Once I uncovered the printer job language reference from HP, I realized this could be fun. After all, who wouldn't get a kick out of a printer with a message, touch me, on the LCD? (laughs) (laughs) So, I wrote some C-sharp and had everything working. And then the rest of it goes on to have the, uh, the, the, well, there's a little... There's a little story there, but and it's kind of funny. And and then he puts the code in there, the C sharp code to use sockets to actually talk to the HP printer and send it a custom string to write "Touch me" on the display. No or kidding. something. I that guess is funny. Yeah, and it, and it's 2003, so that's like 1.1. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Wow, that's way long time ago. He's got a a, a a function that gets a random message, like buzz off, touch me, step away, set to stun, score equals 3413, pat eats mice, feed me, go away, need more space, pour me a drink, <laughs> <laughs> insert quarter, <laughs> nice hair. <laughs> Too funny. That's really cool. That is funny. So anyway, just, you know, I, I think that's a little street cred for Scott Allen there. And it's funny. It is funny. It's a, yeah, it's a long time ago when C-sharp was new and novel. Yeah. Tinyurl.com slash HP hack. Thought you'd get a kick out of that Love today. It. So who's talking to us, Richard? I had grabbed a comment off of show 955. And that's the one we did with uh, Neil Danson not so long ago. We were talking about F-sharp. Yep. And uh, this comment comes from Clive Bunting, who says, Interesting show, as always. This has made me want to pick up my F-sharp studies again, as I've always thought it would be a good fit in my work coding our electricity trading analytical libraries with traders calls from Excel. Mm -hmm. So he's using Excel to sort of map out data around buying and selling electricity, and then he's thinking, doing some more complex algorithms in the back end. There's Hmm. always a natural fit between using a functional language like F-sharp and a tool like Excel. What's always stopped me from getting too far down the path with F-Sharp has always been the amount of adoption in the market. If I were to move our business code to F-Sharp, I know I would struggle to find good F-Sharp devs in the recruitment market. C-Sharp has always trumped F-Sharp, and there's been plenty of C-Sharp devs looking for a job. And while maybe not producing the most elegant solution, C-Sharp can provide a good enough solution to most problems, so it's the pragmatic choice. And I think this is less and less true. You know, we're growing more skill sets. I think the the block of functional developers, and I wouldn't just call them F-sharp developers either, because you look at the guys that are starting to hang out in the Erlang space right. and, and others, and even you're seeing C-sharp programmers program much more functionally. The sure. style's becoming more common. So, right. Clive, while I appreciate your position now, I think you got to look closer because there's more folks coming up and... 
this might be a competitive advantage for you to actually have faster, more powerful code or using some of the other tools that are out there, like the ones we're going to talk about on this show, right. to be even better at building uh, high-performance systems for the stuff you need. Either way, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Windows Phone 7 and 8, Windows 8, iOS, and Android. And those apps are built by Diatom Enterprises. We'd love to build you an app. Just go to DiatomEnterprises.com. And that brings us to our guest today. Richard Astbury helps software businesses around Europe migrate their applications to the cloud. He works with a wide variety of companies, ranging from the smallest startups to the largest software businesses in the world, and specializes in moving applications that were never designed to run in the cloud or utilize the Windows Azure platform. Richard is a Microsoft MVP for Azure and senior consultant at 210 Degrees. He is often found developing open source software in C Sharp and Node.js, and lives in rural Suffolk in the UK with his wife and two children. Welcome back, Richard. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. So Orleans. That's right. This is a Microsoft Research Project, is it not? Correct. Yeah. What is this all about? Well, this was uh, just released at Build. I think you were there, weren't you, Richard? Were you in the... Yes, in I the was. Company? Great. Uh, it's It's been a project that's um, been an internal Microsoft uh, project for a while, but now the binaries are released uh, for you to just go and download and run. So what is it? So what is it? Well, it's a .NET implementation of the actor model. So we should probably start with what is the actor model? Sure. Good place to start. <laughs> yeah. So the actor model is nothing new. It was uh, invented by a chap called Carl Hewitt back in the 70s. And he took inspiration from particle physics and uh, other mysterious places. And I can't quite see how those, those things match uh, what he produced. But he wrote a paper, among others, and that paper describes a programming methodology or technique called the actor model. Uh, and he was originally thinking about artificial intelligence implementations and things like that. But uh, Joe Armstrong of Ericsson you know, picked that up in the 1980s uh, and built a language called Erlang, which, of course, we're all very familiar with today. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that capitalizes on, the, on this actor model. So what is an actor? Well, an actor is um, something you could think of as, as an object. Uh, it is allowed to do three things. It's uh, allowed to do some computation, so it can have some internal logic that it can run. It has internal state, so it, it can um, remember values, and, and you're allowed to change them, so it's mutable state. Mm -hmm. And it can pass messages to other actors. So okay. what's, what's missing and what it can't do is it can't access shared state, and it can't go and modify directly the state of other actors your state is kind of private to you and uh and you can't go and um go and change someone else's state and that's a good yeah. thing isn't it that's great because it uh, solves a lot of our concurrency problems and concurrency is something that is becoming more of a problem these days which is why you know people are looking at f sharp and functional languages because moore's law is no longer being observed by cpu speeds going up it's parallelization of the processes and having multiple cores and multiple sockets on your motherboards and then the cloud then takes that to another level by you know, having huge uh, horizontal scale out capabilities so you end up running your software on on lots and lots of processes distributed amongst lots of cores yeah and that's that's a hard problem to solve uh, and these concurrency problems that that uh, you have to deal with are, are difficult problems to solve so um, one solution to that is, is this functional approach where you don't mutate state, but the actor model is another approach where you can make, make, uh, mutate state, but only private state. And so you don't share any state. And so you don't have any problems with two, uh, two processes trying to modify the same value at the same time. Because mutexes are bad. That turn, turns your multi-core system back into a single-core system, doesn't it? <laughs> a big hurry. <laughs> Everybody stop and wait for the one thread. So this is uh, really interesting to, to, to .NET developers. Why? I mean, I guess we, we're not using Erlang. We're using C Sharp mostly and, of course, VB.NET. But how does this interface with um, the languages that we know and love? Well, .NET developers should be should be pretty excited by this because it takes 
uh, all of the thinking of, around the actor model and all of the hard work of building a distributed system and builds that into a framework, which you can then make use of and not have to worry about the hard problems uh, I've just mentioned. And you just focus on building your business logic in these uh, axes. So it's taking taking in uh, the some of the, the thinking and some of the approach that Erlang has, but turning it into a .NET. But you should be very careful not to try and compare the two beyond that, really. Right. I was um, gonna. I was gonna say. I mean, C sharp not a very uh, Erlang like language. No. But and how- er- er- yeah, Erlang's motivations are really around um, fault tolerance and high availability. You know, it comes from a an environment where, where it's operating telephone switches, and so mm. the, that switch mustn't go down. And you've had Brian Hunter on the show before talking about yeah. the crazy amount of reliability you get out of Erlang. For sure. Right. Yeah. With Orleans, are going for a, a different. Um, problem really we're going for extremely high scale and low latency and so it fits that kind of problem very well uh, and uh, makes it really easy to to build you know, huge systems and the kind of first big implementation of Orleans was uh, to support the Halo 4 back end for the launch of that game so you're seeing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of players all simultaneously trying to play with each other and having and the problem you know, is how do you support um all those players on one system so that you know, any player can play with any other player uh, and supporting that at a huge scale. Yeah. Now, it's not like every player plays with every other player at the same time, right? It, it breaks down That's into right. games where there's a certain number of players per game? Yeah, I think with Halo, there's five players in a game. But you don't know which player you're going to play with right. when you join the system. So traditionally, you can you can achieve high scale by splitting up your system into lots of smaller systems and then routing players to certain places. But it's better really to have one massive system and uh, and have that scale uh, in itself. So that's the that's the approach with Orleans. So, it, but it was it was the whole Halo Four backend running on one big server, or is it? I've got to presume it was a whole bunch of machines involved. Yeah, we're talking hundreds of machines, right? But that's not thousands of machines. Not thousands, no, no. Um, uh, certainly, there were hundreds of thousands of players, and you can support you know, hundreds of thousands on each each server, and then right. you get to the the millions range when you then multiply that across a hundred servers or so. And they, I mean, the main thing the back end doing is actually figuring out where each player is at any given moment, and all the objects that are moving, like the, the missiles and things that they, that are, is Halo. So it's a constant yeah, think, collision detection model for a small group of data at very high, very timely rates. I think I think part of that's solved for you by the peer-to-peer network that the Xboxes already have. Okay. I think what Orleans is helping with is um, some of the matching and then some of the second screen stuff. So you could have your iPad next to you playing the game and you can see where your team are. Right. And uh, and I think some of the game matching stuff was going on in in Orleans as well. So, so my my mistake then the collision model stuff was done by the Xboxes. I think so. Yes. But the message passing of just who's in what game, getting everybody together and giving an overview was run yep. by this back. So what's interesting to me here, Richard, is that I'm getting sort of the the goodness of what I would get with F Sharp. You know, um, without having to completely turn my programming paradigm up on its head. Right, because we've had a few shows now in F-Sharp where they've been talking about the actor model. This is the first time I've had a conversation about the actor model for C-Sharp. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So, is that is that really what we're talking about here? I mean, we're getting the goodness of F-Sharp in C-Sharp? I think you still have to think of those languages as, as very different. So, with F-Sharp, you... You know, it's a very functional language, isn't it? You have um, pattern matching and you have um, oh God, what, well, all sure. the other good functional stuff. Well, but. sure, I know that. They're different languages. But, I mean, I'm getting the, the benefit of the actor model and, the you know, all of the things that go along with it. You know, yeah. the parallel computing, the horizontal scalability, the, you know, the all of that kind of stuff with without having to give up my core competency. That's right. Yeah, you can take... Um, regular C-sharp developer who's been developing C-sharp all their lives. And if they're familiar with uh, async and await and tasks, then they're away with Orleans. There's, there's very little to learn. Um, it's a very easy um, thing to get started with. And I really do encourage people to, to take a look at it. And but you, it said, you said tasks. Now, isn't there some, some consternation there with tasks in Orleans? Yeah, we should probably dive into, into how Orleans works a bit, shouldn't we? And, and think about 
uh, what's involved in, in building a system with all ins. So um, first of all, with all ins, uh, they've come up with their own nomenclature for things. So instead of having axes like we would have in, in Erlang, we have grains. Uh, and instead of having a, a server or runtime, we have a, something called a silo. So gra- you know, grains live in silos, silo- silos run on servers. Uh, we can build an all-in system with lots of silos that all talk together and form our, our cluster. So what is a grain? Well, a grain is just a C-sharp object. And there are some um, restrictions you have on that object, and there are some guarantees as well. So uh, one guarantee is that you'll, there'll only ever be one instance of your grain across the whole cluster at any given time. So you know you don't have to um, cope with the fact that there might be two versions of your grain somewhere in the system and you're having to reconcile that somehow. And the second guarantee uh, is that uh, code in your grain will always run in a single thread. So you don't have to worry about any concurrency problems within your grain. So if two messages come into your grain at the same time, there's a queue that will build up. The first message will be processed. Then uh, when that's complete, the second message will be processed. So at no point in time do you have to do any locking or any kind of thread awareness in your grain. Uh, that's all, all solved for you by the, the framework. Uh, you also have to uh, do everything asynchronously. So you should never uh, block code in a grain. You should always use um, tasks and return a task. And the async await keywords really help out there to make that code uh, more understandable and easier to write. And when you say task, you're not talking task parallel library? Uh, so, yeah, good point. So the way all ends works is that your the, the code in your grain is dispatched on its own internal thread pool, and so it manages that for you. So if um, so, if you try and use the, t- the parallel task library, which maintains its own thread pool, you're going to end up in some trouble because you're going to be trying to run code in a grain but outside of the Olean's thread pool. And that's a that's a bad place to be, and you're going to see all kinds of strange errors, and you'll be in a, a world of pain. So um, you should always use tasks. You should avoid the parallel task library, but that doesn't mean you can't do things in parallel because you can fire off a load of asynchronous requests to something. Perhaps you're talking to a another grain, or you're talking to a, an external web service, and then you can just um, keep a handle of those promises, those tasks you get back and then await the lot, and then carry on from there. Right. So it's a different way of thinking about programming. You, my first approach was, all oh, right, I need to use a parallel task library because I need to do two things at once. But that's, that's the last, last thing you want to do, really. You just want to collect up those promises. So, the, so it is C-sharp, but there are some gotchas. There are indeed, yes. Yeah, you need to be very uh, careful uh, that you don't go and block, block uh, code in your grain. You need to be careful that everything is asynchronous. Uh, you should be mindful of the fact that it's uh, always running in a single thread. Very good. The funny part here is, is like you need to stick with the simplicity of it. Anybody who's mm. overthinking this is going to get into trouble. Right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty funny, right? It's like if I just write <laughs> a straightforward method that does a particular thing and I don't write any fancy code in it and keep everything contained, it'll just work. Absolutely right. So, so how do I get started coding wise? I mean, what is the what's the implementation look like? Okay, first thing you need to do is go to aka.ms/orleans uh, uh, and go and download uh, the installer. Uh, and then install install the SDK on your local machine, and uh, that will add uh, some new project types to Visual Studio. So the first uh, thing you should then do is create an interface uh, collection for your grains. So when I said a grain is just a, a class earlier, that was that was a lie. Uh, <laughs> you, actually, <laughs> you actually start by creating an interface to describe the methods that you, is that are going to be on your grain. Okay. So you wouldn't normally bother describing the properties your grain has because that's state, and we know that all state in a in a grain or an actor should be internal and not modifiable from outside. So you should just be thinking about uh, methods, and they should of course return tasks because they should be asynchronous. Uh, so you, you you build that, uh, and then you add another project, which is an implementation uh, of that grain interface. Uh, and there you simply write your code as you would normally, 
and you you build out um, the logic that that grain has to have. Mm-hmm. And you can do um, whatever you want in there, really, as long as you observe the rules we mentioned earlier. So you can go, you can still go and call out to external systems. You can access databases. You can do whatever you like. And then um, then you're kind of ready to to start using the system. So uh, the next thing you need to do is kind of build a, a client, uh, which is going to connect to your grain and, and make, make calls to it. So what happens when you compile the interface project, the first one, is some code generation happens behind the scenes and uh, you get a, a new uh, class produced for you, which is a factory, which creates uh, handles to your grain. So you would, if you had a, a grain one, for example, you get a grain one factory uh, and then that'll have a method on it saying, get me a grain, get, get grain. And you pass in the ID of the grain you want. Now, in typical object-oriented programming, when you create an object, you have a variable that, that points to that object, right? And then right. when you want to interact with the object, you use that variable. That doesn't work in a distributed system because if your object is actually running in a different process on another machine, uh, you don't really know which machine the grain is on. It's not really your concern. The Orleans cluster manages that for you. Mm. So you have to have a, an external ID so that you can refer to that grain again and... Uh, and have an external reference. Right. So you can use a, either an integer or a, a GUID for that. So you'd say, get me grain zero or grain one or whatever number you like. And you'll get back, um, you'll get back uh, an interface, which is the original interface you, you use to describe the behavior of your grain. Then you can use um, that to then call methods on your grain. So you might have a method called hello, uh, and that would respond back with, with a greeting or something like that. And when um, you make your first call into Orleans, you don't know whether your whether your grain exists or not. You, know, you don't know whether someone has come along before you and asked for grain zero. Uh, it's not really your concern. It, it's Orleans that manages the life cycle of your grain. So it'll go and uh, create an object for you in the in the silo cluster, and then it'll then call the method on that grain for you and and make sure you get the response back. Then on your second request, your grain already exists. So when you make the call into Orleans, it goes and routes your request through to the right uh, silo in the cluster that holds your grain in memory. And then it runs the, the second method on your grain and that returns back. So you you don't really care whether the grain exists or not, um, where it is. You just say, Orleans, I want to run this method on this grain. And it returns the result back. And so you really don't have to own any of the routing either, right? This is all automated for you. You just have the the, to- the token to the grain. That's right. Yeah, you just have your your ID. That that integer will give it. And that's and as yeah, much as you need to know. Points. Yeah, that's as much as you need to know. That's right. I like that, but, but it just makes it transparent to you. You don't really have to know all this much. How different is this coding style from a client perspective to just a good old fashioned async and await? That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's very very easy to use. But it does take some wow. thinking to build it right. You do. You have to very carefully consider how you model your problem with grains because not everything maps perfectly well onto grains and some things are quite hard to do in, in grains because the last thing you want to do is, as we mentioned at the start, that system-wide lock. So the last thing you want to do is have a grain which all of your traffic goes through to... Um, to get anything done because then that would act as a bottleneck hmm. uh, and you don't have a very, uh, very, very good scalable system. So you've got to think about, you know, how you, you model your, your situation into these little grains that can all work independently without all having to talk to one single resource. Rich, I don't know how familiar you are with the actual Halo 4 architecture. Would, would each player represent a grain or yeah, so- was there a collective piece to that? How does that actually model out? What they did in Halo 4 is they have a, a grain for every player right. and a grain for every game as well. Right. So uh, the Xbox would send a message in, I think via the Azure service bus, uh, to the player grain, and then the gr- player grain would then attempt to join a game grain. And if there are less than five players in the game grain, then you're allowed in, otherwise not. Uh, and then, then each player can then... Uh, inspect the state of the game they're in and and uh, they all you know, kind of share that shared state between them. 
Hey, Richard, you know what time it is? Uh, must be that happy time again. Yep. Time to take the bus to New Orleans and throw down a bottle of grain. <laughs> <laughs> little corn, a little rye, a little malt. See what I did there? I like that. I like that a lot, <laughs> bourbon boy. So, it's uh, time to give away an Infragistics Ultimate Collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Uh, but first, let me tell you about it. Infragistics Ultimate makes it easy to build stunning apps with incredible performance. Start showing your customers beautiful, interactive prototypes right from the beginning. Take those prototypes forward and integrate amazing controls, including animated data visualization, to take your app to the next level. With all the functionality for building web, windows, and mobile apps included, you'll have all you need with built-in wizards, templates, and step-by-step -step videos to ensure that building your first app is simple. And they've tested and tuned against the industry and millions of real-world applications, including mission-critical Fortune 500 apps, to make sure your apps are fast. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Glenn Gunnarsson. Congratulations, Glenn. Congratulations. Golf clap for you, sir. You just won the Infragistics Ultimate just for being a member of the fan club. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we give away great free stuff from our sponsors like Infragistics Ultimate. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the fan club. And we like to ask our guests, Richard Asbury... If you had $5,000 to spend right now on technology, and I'm talking let's go shopping, what would you buy? Very good question. Well, this summer, I am planning to do a large construction project at home and build uh, an extension to my house. Well, get a builder to build an extension to my house. Nice. So I'm thinking, how do I put home automation in? How, you know, What options are there for building a little network here, uh, having a, a bit of a smart home? So, you know, having a nest and, and things like that. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you know, Richard, you've got quite a lot of server infrastructure in your house, haven't you? I don't know what yes, you'd Yes, a little bit more than seems reasonable today, actually. He's a little over the top. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, I am switching over to nest as well. I, and you know that the, the smoke detector is not on sale at the moment, but that sure will be remedies. They deal with their issues. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm with you, man. And... Uh, are you gonna just lay a lot of fiber, a lot of, of cable into the house, or are you gonna just go all Wi-Fi? I'm thinking all Wi-Fi, but my primary concern is how to uh, afford all the bricks first. So um, ah. most of my focus is on that. But yeah, Wi-Fi and maybe I've got a Raspberry Pi sitting sitting around here somewhere. Well, so I might Wi-Fi is uh, about to get three times faster, isn't it? Yeah, there's a few standards that they're goofing around with to try and get more bandwidth out of it. It's the bricks that worry me because yeah. Wi-Fi doesn't go through cement particularly well mm. you know uh, here in the west we it's all wood construction so it's not a big deal to throw a high power wi-fi point in one side of a house and it'll go through all the walls just fine mm -hmm. yeah i've got quite a long garden as well so i'd need something down it down yeah at, need a repeater top. yep yeah, well sure they make them they certainly do and it's you know worth using a little bit of infrastructure there to lay down a few points but i would also point out when the walls are off cable is cheap Mm. <laughs> that's right wire is with the walls already open pulling the wire is expensive but the wire itself is very cheap well and you can't pull wire through a brick wall you got to pull it around it with conduit and that kind of looks weird and you it's know? also not as cheap yeah maybe i'll just lay some ducting when no one's looking ha. <laughs> 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 then you're future proof don't you? yeah yeah it's a it's a good question but uh yeah, it is a challenge. I would definitely think about how you're going to lay some wire, at least to connect up the access points. Right. Mm. Much less the, the Wi-Fi itself. So Drill holes in the floor. That's but what yeah, we did. And do, you, do you do brick all the way up, or is it a partial wall? How do you guys build there? Well, traditionally, it's all we have concrete blocks and then, then bricks on the outside. On but the outside. in fact, it's, it's going the way of um, yeah, prefabricated wooden construction. Yep. And we're going half and half, so brickwork hmm. on the ground floor and then and wooden on top. A lot of glass, a lot of steel work. Yep. Should be quite, quite smart when it's finished. Yeah, it'll be great. Hmm. Well, it's certainly going to eat up your five grand and then some. Yeah. That I have no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> Not cheap. We were poking around a bit more with the sort of Halo implementation, sort of the thoughts of the different kinds of projects. This, I guess the big part here is 
is making sure that each of your tasks are quite independent of each other, something that really breaks up nicely into discrete tasks. And I'm thinking back to the comment we read at the beginning of the show where this fellow is thinking about trading and whether or not it makes sense to use F-sharp. Now, suddenly you're offering C-sharp to do the same style of development. I guess, how do you deal with dependencies between grains? I know it's the thing we're supposed to avoid, but sooner or later that's going to happen. Like, Is there a right way to go about it? Yeah, you can, um, you can certainly call other grains from inside grains. Uh, so that's how you should, should construct a system. You should have um, you know, one grain talk to another grain and, and forward messages around. A grain train. Yeah, you need to be a little bit careful and you need to avoid having huge cascades because well, for two reasons, you know, a lot of cross-grain uh, communication, uh, is it means that there's a higher chance that a grain you're talking to is on another silo and then you're doing lots of networking between your, your silos. Right, and you're, you're making out of process calls and there's serialization costs and, and network yep. communication time costs. Absolutely right. So you right. shouldn't, Shouldn't go too mad, but yeah, you should definitely um, uh, you know, have a have a system where grains talk to each other. That, that's all part of the, the design. Well, even in the Halo Four scenario, you've got five players all talking to uh, each with a grain, all talking to a game, which is a grain. That's right. So there's going to be some competition for that game grain. Hmm. Correct, but only amongst five Xboxes. Right. I mean, if everything spoke to one single grain, which I don't know, did a count of the number of players on the system or something like that and that's that's a bad design because then everything is then going for a single bottleneck yeah it's very dangerous but i think that this is the this is the architectural thinking that i would focus on is what are our actual units of work where are what kind of competitions are we going to get how many how many given grains are going to try and reach to the same grain that's right and i guess i I guess no hard and fast numbers but i got to think anything in the single digits you don't have to worry that's right. I think you're correct. Yeah. <laughs> and you can always do um, fan out asynchronously. So you go talk to five child grains or something all at once, send them all a message at once, then wait back for all their responses and right. do that. In- you need to be mindful that if your request, if your um, call to a grain takes longer than 30 seconds, then you're going to be timed out. Really? So 30 yeah. seconds is the limit to a grain anyway? 30 seconds is the limit to a grain, yeah. So you, you, sh- you should think... You shouldn't be trying to do heavy processing in there. You shouldn't be doing loads and loads of calls to stuff and definitely not doing that in, in series. You need to parallelize stuff and get get the answer back quickly. It's supposed right. to be like a low latency, quick response system. Yeah, 30 seconds is a long time when you're talking about a video game, certainly. Yeah, yeah, it is. But, but it also speaks to the size of a grain, sort of the decomposition you want to do here. I, that, you know, how much is the overhead of the call then? The call's pretty fast. I, um, so you could expect, I don't know, it's been a while since I've looked at the benchmarks, but sure. yeah, and, yeah, I don't want to say it because I know I'll get it wrong. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you talk else. about the mechanics of a Halo 4 game, just showing the map to somebody. You want to yeah. update that map probably every second, maybe four or five times a second. Yeah, we're, we're talking reasonably high throughput. Yeah. yeah. So just yeah, thinking about the scope second. of that. You know, 100,000 people all getting map updates, but they only yep. have to touch a few grains. So the actual execution time on each one of those grains is going to be in the milliseconds. That's right. I mean, that, that's if you're actually getting that kind of execution speed, you're up against your bandwidth as the limiting factor. If every call is 30 milliseconds and the call itself, the execution time on the call is 20 milliseconds, like you care a lot about latency. Well, and do, yeah. that brings us to another point, which is, where where doesn't it fit? Where doesn't where is every problem not a grain, right? Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. We probably probably get to discuss where it does fit first, uh, which is um, so the the great thing about it. The main advantage of of having all these grains around in these silos is that they stay in memory. Mm. So in a traditional system, to do high scale, you would think about stateless web servers, wouldn't you? Uh, yep. And you you'd have um, your state in a database. So you, you push your concurrency problems down into the database layer uh, and you, you have a stateless system. So the, the cost in, in that system is that every time a request comes in, you then have to gather together enough data to be able to answer the request. Mm-hmm. And so that 
that data might have to come from a database system or you might be using a distributed cache or something like this. But for every request, that you can have to do this, you know, pulling together all these pieces of information to then serve the response. With Orleans, it's a different approach. You, you, you route the request through to the place where the data is uh, held in memory and where the processing logic is as well. So you can then answer that request immediately without having to do any lookup to any external system. Right. So that that's how you're able to achieve the, both the high scale and the low latency because you can store hundreds of thousands of these grains in memory on each server and you multiply that out and you get a huge, huge system holding lots of stuff. So it, so it does look a bit like a, a huge um, in-memory cache where you know, everything in the cache is actually a, a little bit of code. Right. Um, so, but it's, it's an object cache because it's got methods attached to it. Mm-hmm. That's right. All right, so you're you're, and it's inherently stateful. Actually, you're invoking a grain to populate itself, and then you're giving it tasks. Yeah, and, and getting it to maintain its state in between requests. Right, and then uh, of course, Orleans may decide. Well, wait a minute, I've got a lot of grains here. I'm running out of memory. Uh, it'll then pick grains that haven't had a request sent to them uh, for a certain interval. And it'll um, elect those for garbage collection and remove them from memory. Yeah, so sort of a oldest first kind of thing. Mm. That's right, yeah. So, but you as a client don't care. I mean, if your grain's been garbage collected, it doesn't really matter. It's just a small overhead required to then reactivate that grain when, when it's required. So that's why they call it a virtual actor system in Orleans, because you know, your, your grains could be alive, they could be dead. It doesn't really matter to, right. your, to your client system. I- it's Orleans' problem, not yours. So, and, and does the grain get a chance to clean up when it's told you're done? Yes. Yeah, there's a deactivate method that's called to say, hmm. you're going you're gonna to die. Choose something to you know, go and do something. <laughs> Any so, last words? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Go and save your state somewhere if there's something important to save. Right. But then but that token, when a client goes back and invokes by the ID, is it going to actually reconstitute that grain with the ID or does it make something new? Like, What's the reaction on the client side? So, from a client perspective, you have no idea whether your grain exists or not. Right. You just say, I'd like to send this message to this grain, and if it doesn't exist, Orleans has to go and create it. Right, and gives it the same handle. Yes. Interesting. So, yeah, you really don't know whether it's alive or dead. It's irrelevant. Hmm. No, you don't. The only, the only implication would be latency. It takes a little yeah. longer to start it up. And the only it's like the observer effect. The only way of telling whether your grain is alive is to actually just create it, by which time it's alive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the right. answer is always yes <laughs> it's always yes <laughs> it's always that <laughs> but then for me as the operator of this infrastructure i'm looking at the how much headroom i have left on these servers as to whether i need to light more instances because now we're starting to have this churn like there's a there's a downward spiral here as you as orleans starts cleaning up actors because it needs space and then it gets called to them again so it reconstitutes them you're going to have yep. more and more turning over like that which increases overall load you add yeah. more infrastructure, you decrease the load, and, and uh, decrease the latency as well. Absolutely right. Yeah, spot on. Okay. Yeah, and I'm just I put my infrastructure hat on. How am I going to monitor this and know how many instances I need? It writes out some information to table storage to tell you how many active grains there are on each server. Right. So you can then do some uh, load testing and figure out how many grains you can hold in memory and figure out the size of the, the cluster you need. I'm hearing some overlap with Hadoop here. Am I crazy? Well, if you look at um, some of the latest thinking coming out of Microsoft in the how do we cope with the Internet of Things problem, uh, you'll see uh, architecture diagrams that have things like uh, service bus to provide uh, authorization and authentication going into Orleans to then hold device state in memory. And then you've got Hadoop then doing aggregation and querying across that huge set of data you're collecting. Mm. Because um, aggregating information in Orleans is hard because if you want to get a single answer out for, I don't know, how many how many devices are there in the world, mm-hmm. you need to go and ask every single grain or every single grain needs to go and report some information. And that's creating a bottleneck. So that's that's not a very good distribution so, system. So not so good for MapReduce, but really good for uh, for the for the high scale, low latency yeah. problems. So you, there are ways around this. So you can then have like a, you could build a really complicated reporting infrastructure where every grain reports some information up to a, a tree of grains that then has a single reporting point at the top, that kind of thing. That, that's the kind of stuff we've played around with, mm. with Orleans. But that's, 
you know, it kind of feels like you've got the wrong tool for the job then if you're building that kind of infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And yeah, really the answer is go run a map produced job across all the data that you're collecting with these grains and and get your answer that way. Hmm. Yeah, because in a a map produced job would sort of speak to the idea of one grain per service or server, really. It would be sort of a mega grain. Like Hadoop is not as granular as what you're describing here. No. No, Hadoop is a good way of getting a single number out of a large set of data, isn't it? Yeah, well, but it's great. The biggest thing is it is so easy to distribute across multiple machines to mm. speed up your processing, and then it, and then it de-distributes it. But it's the sort of granular size is the server instance. Yeah, that's right. And here you're talking about many grains per server instance. Yes, yeah, hundreds of thousands. Which I yeah, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. Just how big the grain is. And that thirty second lifetime thing. That that to me is sort of the that's mom, right? Mom's mm-hmm. watching. Mm-hmm. Don't take <laughs> thirty seconds. That's right. Well, you're doing it wrong if you're starting to take that long to respond. Yeah, you, know, you want a, a nice snappy system, don't you? Yeah, I'm almost yeah. thinking sub second is the norm. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Which is a great term, sub second. So, Richard, let's uh, let's talk use cases. Do you have any? Um, stories from the field that you can give us? Yeah, so the gaming industry is is definitely uh, somewhere uh, that's looking very interestingly at all ends. Besides Halo reasons, 4, right? Yeah, yeah. So we've seen Halo 4 and we've seen other games out there that, that are using it already. Uh, but I think its appeal is much broader than that. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, one thing that really springs to mind is this Internet of Things problem where you you have hundreds or thousands or millions of devices out there in the world uh, and they're all reporting some telemetry back for example yeah. and you're trying to build a, a model of, of what's going on in your in your system sure so you might be having you might have an oil rig with um sensors all over it and you want to combine the data from all of these uh, data points to then decide is my oil rig going to explode or something like this <laughs> and you, you, know, you couldn't use a value from a single sensor to make that decision because there may be an irregularity in the in the reporting you'd need to you know combine several sensors to build up a an overall picture and of course uh orleans is an immediate consistent system so you have uh, an immediate you know an accurate model of what your oil rig looks like at any given point in time so yeah. you, uh, it's quite easy to compose a system you could you know, model each sensor with a grain and then you could have uh, they could all report back to a, a grain that represents a piece of equipment they're monitoring, and then that could then report back up to a, uh, a grain that represents the whole rig, for example, and then that could then look out for for signals to say there's a problem. Right. So um, I think that's a really interesting space. I mean, there's people uh, from manufacturing looking at Orleans. There's people uh, who have um, kind of Internet of Thing devices, you know, sticking them on cars or uh, attaching them to people and monitoring um, the movements of things. So I really think that's where Orleans is really going to fit you know, in, in supporting this, mm. this huge Internet of Things we're about to build. It's being built. Mm. Yeah. It's a, it's a nice diversion for me. I mean, I'd like to go down the Internet of Things rabbit hole for a minute, if you don't mind. Please do. The um, the problem, of course, is that standardization of data is is an issue. And uh, I, I don't know what you, your thoughts about that are, or if you have any or know of any standards bodies that are sort of uh, coming, coming out. But it seems like we're not going to get any standards until, you know, there are winners. And uh, you have, you know, companies that are sort of taking the lead and their, their protocols and their data formats are, are be, become sort of de facto standards. What we've done is is we um so part of our business is to do consulting but the other part we run a, a software as a service um product which um takes messages from the satellite gateway and we can uh, receive messages from all kinds of devices be those satellite phones or satellite modems or just um, really small satellite enabled devices and they you know feed data to us in a variety of formats then we kind of pass all of those messages and turn them into a standardized format because mm. they all pretty much contain the same piece of data uh, you know where they are and what the time was and what the message is and things like that and then we provide an API over that to then give you a, a feed to tell you 
yeah, this is what your satellite devices are, are telling you and you can then send them messages back. Right. So I think, I think it's okay to have a variety of um, input formats and protocols feeding a system like this. You just have to have a gateway which can, can, uh, can work with all those formats and convert them into something standardized that you can then feed into all ends as a, a signal. Hey, you remember BizTalk? <laughs> <laughs> what happened to BizTalk anyway? <laughs> yeah. What happened? Cool. To, what, what, I mean, seriously, how come nobody talks about BizTalk anymore? Is anybody using it? Anyone? Bueller? Uh, they definitely are. You know, we, there, there are projects out there. I think it's just, you know, BizTalk's origins are in the um, unified data distribution concept. I mean, a lot of the fundamental ideas that they had were pre-internet. Right. And now they've morphed it into a pretty good service bus, but it's really about transforming messages. And when you look at the modern system today, we don't even question anymore that it's all HTTP. You know, mm-hmm. it's, there's only one kind of message. So we, what we put in it varies, but we just don't have that same set of issues. You know, that being said, the folks that are using BizTalk are quite successful with it. There's certainly money to be made in BizTalk, isn't there? Uh... Yeah, well, it's, it is, a, and it's one of those things where your system gets to a certain level of complexity where you need to have a backbone that organizes all of that. But, you know, every time you get a chance to go greenfield, an awful lot of the complexity that BizTalk eats for you goes away. Right. So, it just, you know, when everything's transported over TCP IP and HTTP, you've solved a lot of your problems that BizTalk was going to help you with. And it, there are some interesting standards bodies running around out there already. The folks that are in the networking space and, and so forth that are trying to come up with standard messages. But yeah, it's going to, it's just like browsers. You can talk about features in browsers all day, but until it's in the browser and people are using it, it doesn't matter. I think the service bus team are doing an interesting job, aren't they? They're, they're looking at um, AMQP and MQTT and you know, standards like that, which are starting to become popular amongst the, Internet of Things people and trying to make you know, support all of those formats as a way of ingesting messages into the service bus. And then what we do with the message then is is up to you. You can put on a topical subscription and, and feed that into your system anyway. Yep. We've got, I'm trying to book Clemens Vasters right now, speaking of, of Azure service bus guys. So I'm sure he'll have some things to say in that space as well, because it's just, it's one of these great topics. And, and this is the kind of infrastructure that's going to make it work. I think so, yeah. So is there is there anything else, um, anything more advanced that we should know before we dive into uh before we dive into Orleans? Yeah, there's I mean, there's some more advanced concepts that we haven't covered here. There's, there's things like a, a stateless worker. So when I, I said that there's only ever one instance of your grain mm-hmm. across the whole um Orleans cluster, that was another lie. And you can in fact say this is a special type of grain by putting an attribute on the top. Uh, and that's an indication to Orleans that that grain doesn't hold any state. So it's okay to have more than one of them because there's not going to be any concurrency problems uh, um, in having having more than one instance of it. So this stateless worker can be used in scenarios where you would otherwise have a bottleneck. So um, uh, you can use that stateless worker as a way of um, getting data into Orleans and it can do the fan out to call multiple other grains or the stateless worker could uh, act as your gateway into a, an API or a database or something like that. This and Orleans can can scale that stateless worker out. So if it becomes busy and its queue for getting messages processed is, is building up, it'll create a new instance of that worker, and it'll always guarantee that there's a stateless worker in your local silo. So you don't have to make a cross silo call to to make use of that worker. So that's quite a useful feature. Definitely one you should be mm. aware of. Yeah. And if you're st- starting out with Orleans, it's also worth thinking about. How is your state going to be persisted? So a, a grain lives in memory. When all in society has had enough of your grain and it's it's not been active for a while, uh, you might well get, get deactivated and removed from memory and it's gone then. So if that grain was holding important information that you probably want to access after the life of that grain, you need to put that information somewhere else. So in a database system or in a file or in a blob in blob storage or something like that and you can go and do that yourself you can write the code to to do the query on against sql server or something like that but if you're starting from scratch you can just say 
this is the information I want to store by creating a, a small interface to say these pieces of information are, are important to me. And then you just modify the, the signature of your, your grain class to include that as a as one of the base classes. Uh, and then uh, automatically, your liens will then hook that up uh, using a storage provider system to then store your state for you in uh, Windows Azure table storage or in a SQL database automatically and do all the serialization and deserialization. So when your grain's activated, that state is set for you with the state it was last time. So your code doesn't really care whether whether it's been activated before or not. The state is just set. And then when the state when you change the state inside your grain in an important way that you think, well now I must store this, uh, you just call a method saying save state or write state and it goes and saves it for you. And you can go and implement your own storage providers. And in fact I've got one for blob storage. That's available on GitHub if you're interested. Uh, but you can go and implement your own and, and store your state somewhere else if you want to. So that's if you're starting from scratch, that's probably the best way to think about persistence rather than starting with building a database schema. You just start by building your grains and think, and I need to store my state somewhere. I don't really care where. Table storage will do, and, and go from there. So it can really save time in developing a system because your whole data access layer is kind of written for you. Awesome. Well, you know, as soon as you started talking about a stateful versus stateless version, I started, it just sort of brought WCF to mind, <laughs> you know, but I guess that's, that seems a little heavier weight than what you're doing here. Plus, it's really about the back end framework around those service instances. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You, in some cases, you're going to have a back end system already, aren't you? That you perhaps you've got an existing product and you just want to bolt right on top, then. You just consume those services and, and you store your state there. But if you're starting from scratch, then you might as well make use of the pieces built into all ends for you and, and use the persistence providers available. Right, right. Well, it seems pretty flexible. Mm. Oh, yeah. Hey, this is very cool. And, you know, while it's stretching my imagination a little bit, I imagine that, you know, if you're in that situation where you were looking at uh, – F-sharp to do some of this stuff, and you're not such a fan of it, uh, it's a godsend for you. So, Yeah, definitely. If you're in the in a place where you're trying to handle a lot of data, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of uh, requests from a lot of devices, and you're modeling a, you know, a big world, uh, and you want high, um, high scale, you want low latency, and you want high availability, then you know, definitely look at all ends. It solves a lot of the of the common problems for you in building a kind of large distributed system. And it and it's fun anyway. It's easy to use and get started with. So I strongly encourage you to go okay, and download it. Have a look at the samples that are on the CodePlex site. Some of them I have contributed to, so so you can observe my dodgy coding and <laughs> have a play with, the, with those. Awesome. Yeah, great. Richard, thanks very much. No problem. Pleasure. Pleasure's ours. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a